Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. Here are your hosts. Listeners, friends, people of all ages, cephalopods, avian birds, anyone who care to listen to a podcast, it is so good to have you here with us today. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing great. Great. <laughs> Listeners, welcome to the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. My name is Josh, and with me, as I've just introduced, is my co-host. I'm Andrew, and today we have two guests. We have people who live on boats, which is fascinating enough, but they're also game designers. Please welcome Elmily Willicks and Clark Willicks. Hello, nice to be here. Good day. So, I heard this correctly, and I'm pretty sure all of you did as well. Emily and Clark, you guys live on boats. Can we, before we go any further into anything, can we can we clarify to the audience what that actually means? Yeah, we live on a boat. Yeah. We live uh, together on an old. Uh, our boat's name is Temptress. She's a 1967 Creekmore 45. Which strangely means she's 50 feet long. She's about 50 feet long. So I, I describe it to non-boat people as: imagine you live inside about a regular sized school bus. That's about how much space we live in but imagine that there's way too much organization inside the school bus so you have room for a lot of stuff not a whole lot of stuff but you have room for for life and that sort of thing she's a sailing vessel and she's uh built to cross oceans she can sail around the world i've sailed her about twenty thousand miles since i took off into this lifestyle let's see i i retired very young i guess uh in my 30s and uh, been living on a boat ever since. So we just travel around the world, and currently the boat is in the Dominican Republic, waiting for us to get back to it. We'll be taking it down to Panama this year and Colombia, uh, and then we'll figure out where to go next. Yeah, Clark sailed out of Seattle in 2000. Is that when you said? Uh, 99, I went to Hawaii, then back to Seattle, and then 2000, I went out. Yeah, and he's full-time. been all around through the Panama Canal, and then we met in 2015 in Florida, and since then, we've been going back and forth between Florida and the Bahamas. We went to Turks and Caicos last year and on our way to the Dominican Republic, and that's where the boat is now. But we're, we happen to be in Florida currently. Yeah. Emily joined about seven years ago now. Yep. Lose track. Just seems like forever. My whole life is you. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I worked it out once. I've been to 14% of the world's countries by sailboat. Amazing. That's awesome. So are you sailing like an open sea or are you like sailing near the coast and that's how you do your routes and stuff like that? Can you go a little to like, is it, are you going to like deep oceans or just like coastal, whatever? Like, what are you doing? Well, you do what you need to do. Uh, if you're sailing from one part of, for example, Florida to another, you stay by the coast. But going from Seattle to Hawaii, that's three and a half thousand miles of deep ocean. Ah. <laughs> so, so, so I live next to the beach. I love the beach, but nothing terrifies me more than the ocean. Like people say, space is terrifying. Okay, yeah, space is terrifying to me, but you know, it's mostly nothingness. And I'm just gonna float there. If I'm gonna die in space, you know, I'm just gonna be floating there. Fine, whatever. It's okay. But the ocean. You can't see what's underneath. It's just darkness. There could be a squid. There could be a shark. It's it's just this terrifying nothingness that we know less about than actual space. But I love the ocean. But you know, kudos to you. I'm glad you're you're on the sea enjoying it. <laughs> well, that's how you would start because you were we're land animals. But once you spend enough time out on a sailboat, you end up getting the exact opposite view of the world. 
because that boat floats. She's been floating for over 50 years, and she is going to continue to float. So that's not a problem. Out there, there's n until she hits something hard like a rock. Well, there's no rocks out in the ocean, so you're safe. And when you and there's no people out in the ocean, so when you come back, you're not going to have criminals coming giving you problems. You're you're so free and so safe mid-ocean. Yeah, we're much more scared of driving driving 70 miles an hour down the highway than we are. Oh yeah, and we're out in the ocean. Yeah, the risks are are probably higher on the highway. But it is it is uh, interesting that you compare it to outer space because we kind of look at it that way too. Because if you're going to be out in the ocean for a few weeks by yourself, you kind of have to take everything that you need. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of like outer space in that if you drop something over the side, it's probably gone. Yeah. So <laughs> you no need to. We'll take. We literally took two thousand pounds of food with us last time we left the United States. We weighed it. Wow. It, it's oh like gosh. a space mission. Yeah. So, and that was good because it was pre-COVID, so we were good. <laughs> yeah, there's no Amazon out there. If you don't pack it, you don't have it. <laughs> that is just insane. Holy cow. Well, I'm glad you guys enjoy that life. It's probably probably not for me. I'll, I'll slip back at home and watch Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. <laughs> or, or sit at home and you can watch our YouTube channel. We've got a YouTube channel called Emily and Clark's Adventure. You can check out that some sometimes it's about our travel. Sometimes it's how to fix, fix your bilge pump. But Hell, sometimes uh, it's how to invest in the stock market so you can live the life. Yeah, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. So that's our YouTube channel. All right. I've got one quick boat question. What is the largest animal you've seen alongside the side of your boat? Have you seen any whales? Oh, certainly. Um, we saw a sperm whale, which are kind of rare to see recently, but it was a young one. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be probably... Well, up really close, humpback whales, like close in. But the biggest thing that's like touched the boat was, um, and these are really rare too, but I was down in, uh, I guess I was off Nicaragua, uh, no, um, Honduras. And I saw what's called a bait ball. And that's where some animal has driven bait fish up to the surface to trap them and eat them. Ah. Well, the birds take advantage of that. So you can see them for miles because the birds are eating the fish too, you know. So we had some fishing lines hanging out the back, so we diverted course a little bit. We were motoring at the time. There was no wind. And I like to go through the edge of the bait ball, maybe getting a tuna or something. Well, we go over there, and there is a whale shark. And we did a big circle because of our lines to come back and look at him. Uh -huh. And he said, what the hell was that? And he did a big circle, too. And the <laughs> two of us, the yacht and the whale shark, came right up beside each other. He is actually swimming along essentially his shoulder touching the side of the boat uh -huh. we measured him he was 25 feet long you know because we could walk back and forth the boat he was amazing yeah and just as a side story if you ever wonder why like big cats have spots he was he has spots like a like little hollow spots and when you look at him from that close it does something to your brain <laughs> And he just kind of disappeared. It was the weirdest feeling. I can't really describe, but I now know why a cheetah has spots or any of those animals. That is absolutely fascinating, but also absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, it's it's a whale shark. He wouldn't bite you. Uh, he's a filter feeder. Yeah. He, he, I really, to this day, really wish I would have jumped in the water and swam with him. Yeah, I once did swim with a whale shark, and I accidentally touched it. It was a little baby. I did not mean to. I was I was closer oh. than I thought I was. So yes, I've experienced that close up close personal feeling. It was it was intense and very cool. They're so rare. Where did you see your whale shark? 
Uh, it was, I think, off the coast of Cabo. Yeah, so, like, for me, with whale sharks, they're awesome. But, like, well, what's ruined it for me is, like, Shark Week, when you're, like, you have, like, <laughs> you have, like, you have, like the documentaries, like, these gentle giants would not hurt a soul, but if you screw with it, one swing of its tail will kill you. It's just like, yeah. well, you didn't have to tell me that. Like, I'm not going to screw with a whale shark. <laughs> but okay, so wouldn't like the fact that we lived in a bay for, well, uh, almost a year with a... Was it fourteen foot tiger shark? Yeah, mm. he said yeah. Like jump and splash every morning. Yeah, he would go for a fish and jump fully out of the water. He's a huge, huge thing, and we swam in that water all the time. Well, I'm glad you enjoy that life. I understand. I completely understand why someone would love that, and I, I just know for a fact I would, I would just die within the first thirty <laughs> minutes. Of, even if I was fully prepared, I watched your guys' YouTube channel. I was ready to go. I would probably die. But that's why I play board games, which is what we're here to talk about. I can listen to you guys about, you know, just get back to board games. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I can listen to tell you guys about these stories all day because I love hearing about people's like lifestyles. But you know, this is a board game podcast. But you guys also have a small publishing company called Small Furry Games. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you guys do? Yeah, so Small Furry Games is I. It's mostly my thing. I drag Clark into it every once in a while <laughs> when he's willing to. He's a break game. He's my chief game breaker. Uh, and he's, you know, obviously I'll throw something in front of him and be like, and it's always like, I know if it's good, he'll say, that's a game. Or he'll say, I don't see the game in it yet. <laughs> that's, that's always like the first little litmus test is like, did this Clark give it the okay or not? But Small Furry Games, uh, started a couple years ago. I was kind of sick in bed for a long period of time and looking for something to do. I was actually going to design my own a uh, version, like a fan version of a board game that I already knew from my childhood called Survive Escape from Atlantis. I don't know if you know this game. Love but it. I, I liked this game as a kid and living on a boat, we don't have room for a lot of big games. So I was like, oh, I can make like a little compact version of this game. And I discovered the Game Crafter when I was looking for custom wooden pieces. And I was like, oh, what is this? The Game Crafter. And uh, there was a contest going on at the time. So I entered the contest and I got, to, you know, it was just like a rabbit hole. I went way down. And then uh, Clark's mom gave me a couple of game design books for my birthday that year. One of them was uh, one of Joe Slack's books, uh, which pointed me toward the Board Game Design Lab community on Facebook. And it just kind of exploded uh, from there. But I started Small Furry Games uh, just after that, I guess. I finally incorporated the business this past June. And we ran a print and play Kickstarter last year for a game called Bah Humbug that I designed. And this year we turned it into... A much bigger collection now there's now it's bah humbug in the 12 games of christmas and there are 12 designers that work together to put 12 additional games in the box and that'll be published uh we just finished the kickstarter and will be published in 2023 so and lots of other stuff going on in the background too so that's amazing that's great so bah humbug is basically you have a set of components in this box and there's 12 different games to use with those components yeah, so it's a it's a it's a deck based on the twelve days of Christmas. So you've got twelve of the drummer drumming cards. You've got eleven of the eleven piper piping cards, all the way down to one partridge in the pear tree. And then there's a few extra cards, and there's some wooden tokens and a pawn in there. So I designed this game, and it was like a, f a fun little like fifteen twenty minute filler game. But to manufacture, you know, almost a hundred cards and have these components in the box, so I'm like, eh, I don't know if that's worth it for a little filler game. So instead of trying to drive the the price down or to to skim off components in the game, I thought, you know, let's explore this probability with this sort of triangular distribution in the deck 
and I invited some friends and kind of put out an announcement for other people to say, like, what else could you do with these components? And I got a whole bunch of submissions of all these ideas. So I started playing through some things and it just sort of uh, sort of expanded from there. And we've actually added a few more components, refined some components, redesigned some cards so that, you know, some of them are marked. So you take them out for this 18 card game by uh, Felix Falk, who's from Sweden. And he has this little Christmas parade game that we put together. And there's one with uh turned into like a tile laying game so all the components are really multi-use it's been an exciting sort of experiment in game design so yeah 13 games one box when you hear 13 games in one box you think oh yeah there might be one good idea there but you got to realize that she's gotten people from all over the world and she's culled i mean there's many many submissions that were submissions that were dumped yeah uh and for these people that got in on this this is many of them are unpublished and they put their all into this one game. So, like, every game is playable. It's yeah. really, you know, They're somebody's games, dream. As you would say, it's yeah, a game. It's, it's a, a game. game. <laughs> yeah, I really like the trend. That's actually a really cool trend that's happening in the industry. You look at games like, you know, Bah Humbug, Lady and the Tiger, the Game Crafter anthology series. The idea mm-hmm. of, you know, using here's a set of components, making a game out of it, and then compiling them all together. It's a really good and affordable way for people to get a whole bunch of games in one box that are, like I said, playable. So I love yeah. that you're doing that with Small and Fairy. Yeah, and, and living on a boat, you can imagine we don't have a whole lot of room to store games. So that multi-purpose thing, I guess, I guess kind of stems out of that. You mentioned Lady and the Tiger. So something going on right now that I didn't even realize till last week. Um, they're doing a little contest right now to design additional games to use with those components. Uh, Jellybean is, so you can submit your ideas to you because they're republishing the game, I guess, and they want to include some more games. And we're going to do something similar with Bah Humbug. There will be a little community contest and our backers will be able to get to vote on sort of the next release that'll go in the box next Christmas. Because the goal is kind of to add another game or two games or maybe more games every year. So it kind of keeps the box alive rather than sort of sitting on your shelf collecting dust. Until the game manual is bigger than the rest of the game. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Well, my instruments are, I love, you know, I love how we're talking about really quick, just a side note. I'll put this in. We're talking about how I'm a submarine. Like I'm a, The whole thing is like, I'm a submarine captain. I'm talking about in the first like 10 minutes podcast, how I'm terrified of going onto the ocean. You yeah. know, it's... Yeah. <laughs> 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 But I'm putting on my big boy hat and I'm going to get my submarine instruments going. We're going to dive into our pre launch. The pre launch. Get to know us and our guests. In the pre launch, we talk about one game we pre- played recently and what we thought about it. So we're going to start here. I, I want to hear from you, Andrew. What game have you been playing recently? So, speaking of card games, I played uh, Fox in the Forest, which is a two player trick taking game. Um, Talk about a compact game that'd be taken just about anywhere. It's just a little mm. bit of cards. And it's a spectacular trick-taking game. I don't think many trick-taking games are actually good at two players. It's really, really hard. A lot of people they have really tried. Aren't. They've done bastardized versions of those kind of things. It almost always takes at least three to make a trick-taking game work. And even more so, it needs pretty much four. So how, do, how they fit two is really impressive. Not only are the player powers interesting when you play them, but there's a lot of strategy and depth to whether you want to take the trick or not and choosing that, which is where the depth of the game comes from. It's a really good one. I highly recommend it. I have played this one. Uh, Fox in the Forest is excellent. It really is. It's one of those games that looks beautiful. 
on there. I, I do like the little story they have going on. It's, it's a very tiny little fairy tale story that's actually incorporated into the cards. And I do enjoy that thematic aspect to it. But really, yeah, it's a pure trick-taking game, but it works super well, too. It's actually probably my favorite trick-taking game. I um, haven't played as many as I would like to, but, you know, that's because trick-taking is um, one of those things that's starting to get a lot more popularity, and they're doing interesting things with it in the design space. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, eh, I, I don't... the I, just, Sometimes it just doesn't land with me. I have no interest in sometimes the themes of it, but Fox in the Forest really hits home. Have you ever played this one, Emily or Clark? This is one that's been on my list for a while. You know, you have, like, your BGG list where you like you want to play your want to buy list and i know this one has been on my list since very early i haven't played it i know i've watched youtube videos on it but yeah i think you're right josh like there's so many trick-taking games out there when someone's i'm like what are you working on oh it's a trick-taking game i'm like oh like i know in my mind what that is right it's hard to find something new i know like uh, a lot of people are talking about is scout scout is a trick-taking game right but that's the one where you can like take something back like it's 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 hard to find a uh, trick-taking game that feels fresh you know that they've added something to it but I, I we haven't played this one but i i think we might have to pick it up knowing that it's good at two players because that's always important for us on the boat mm-hmm. it's only two players and also if you want to try it out ahead of time there's also an app for it so you could play the app and see if you like it first oh that would be good that takes no space yeah <laughs> well you're taking uh two-player games um we found this or actually emily finds all the games now i used to find the games uh when she came aboard the boat we already had games. I bought a whole bunch more to get her excited in that life. Or you have more time to play games, quite honestly. But now she finds them, and I don't even try to keep up. But she found one I really like, and I like it because I'm not finding flaws with it. Mm. It's called Archaeology the Card Game. And usually when I play a game, it's like, well, that would be good if they only fix this. And I don't really find flaws with it. I truly enjoy playing with it. It's what's uh, I guess referred to as a set collection game with push your luck aspects. Okay. You're in, so you're, you're archaeologists and you're collecting, uh, it's got a little bit of sort of the sushi go thing where, you know, there's different types of artifacts that you're collecting and there's only a certain number of those in the deck, which is marked on the card. Uh, and the more you collect, the more it's worth. But once you play, like if you're collecting, the pharaoh masks which are kind of like the the best one in the game once you play a set of those then you can't play any more of them so it's kind of but then there's this thing called the sandstorm and a thief that comes up that makes you clear things out from your hand so you might be collecting like trying to go for eight of this particular type of car i don't know if it's eight but you know five of this particular type of card and you have four and all you need is one more but if you play them now, you know you can play them. But if you wait, something might steal some of those cards from you halfway through. So it's got a little bit of that push your luck, too. Yeah, I feel that it it, it is true to its theme. Its mechanism doesn't clash with the theme at any level. It's not like it's, you know, super complex or anything, but it it's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's got that sort of elegant simplicity, but the complexity that you, you're... Every turn you're making that interesting decision of, do I want to play this and lock in those points, or do I think I can get a little bit more out of it? Yeah, it always makes me happy when simple card games can provide such interesting and deep choices. It, it Sometimes it a little bit frustrates me. Like, you see the BGG Top 100 are full of games like Arc Nova, these really complex, meaty yeah. games that are great. They're great designs, and I think they deserve it. But you don't see the, the you don't see Sushi Go. I think Sushi Go deserves a place in the top 100, personally, because mm-hmm. it's so simple and it's so good and so beloved. Like it's one of those games. I think I would nearly call it a perfect game. That's been William Hinton Sushi Go Party, which is 
also great. It's just, I love those small games. I've heard of archaeology before, but I actually haven't been able to find it anywhere. So I'm glad to hear that you guys enjoy it. And I think there's, I think there's archaeology, the game, and then there's archaeology, the card game. And we have the card game. I actually haven't played archaeology, but I imagine it's probably similar if it exists. I will say this real quick, Josh. Don't worry about Ark Nova and don't worry about Sushi Go. They're both making plenty of money. Don't worry about it. <laughs> They're so oh. neglected. Poor Sushi Go. <laughs> I'm sure Phil Walker Harding doesn't care. That's not in the top 100. But yeah. I care. I care. I care about it. It's okay. Speaking oh. of little card games, uh, the thing that I we played recently, which is an indie game that I got on the Game Crafter and somebody recommended it to me because I was looking for something compact. This is actually fits in a mint tin. It's called Order of the Famished Friar. And it's a card, like cards as tiles where you're, you know, there's like six parts to a card and you're trying to overlap them. This is like dominoes. So mm -hmm. the cards each have two parts and you're trying to build this little garden, which is fits in between in a three by three square. It can never get bigger than that. And you're just like lining up vegetables and things in mm -hmm. this garden. And then there's this menu of dishes that you're trying to make that the carrot and the parsnip and the spinach have to appear in the garden at the same time and then you can make the appetizer or whatever it's a really quick game but it's huh. puzzling uh it's got a little bit of racing to it and actually you were winning it clark when we were playing and then the last that's turn... not a common i'll have <laughs> he wins most of the time <laughs> but at the last uh, the last second i was able to play this one card and it was and i was able to check off two of the dishes at once so he had like two of them complete out of the four i had one and then all of a sudden it was like, bam, right from the back. Yep, yep. What I, I thought was very interesting, too, is you're planting crops to get your um, feast together. It has rules of crop rotation. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was a mechanism that was quite interesting. Like, you could only plant this after you planted that in a place. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah, so each vegetable had a color. And, a, and there was a little bit about some of them were more rare than others, but you could only plant a red suited vegetable on top of a yellow or you could plant it upside down like a face down card to like follow the ground and like give it a break and then you could play anything on top that if you did that in your turn not only would you not get new crops to choose from your partner because it's a two-player game would have a very open field to do anything they wanted so you really avoided that unless you had oh, yeah. to yeah yeah trade-offs were really interesting and just to have a little card game in a mint tin i mean is great for us but it was really it wasn't just, oh, that's a cute little game. It's like, oh, there's actually a whole, you know, game in here that you want to play multiple times and figure it out. It was a game. Yeah. Like Clark says, it's a game. Wow. Cool. <laughs> well, you've added that one to my list. I got to check that one out now. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, check it out. And there was actually, I left a review on it because there was something missing from the rules and it turns out they had uploaded one of the cards incorrectly. <laughs> um, so I'm glad I emailed them and they, they just fixed it. So when you buy it, you'll have the complete rule set. I think he's sending me the last card. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. The card was well, I forget that it's Game Crafter, so he makes a change. Anybody buying it after that date gets the change. Yeah, and I, I love finding new. We just uh, found something called Song Froggy on the Game Crafter 2. I'm interested to try that one as well. It's like a tile-pulling game about little frogs in a South Carolina jug <laughs> band, sort of. <laughs> as frogs do. <laughs> like you do. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> Well, I'm going to wrap up this pre-launch with my game, which is Dwarf Romantic, which is actually a computer game, but it's a board game. It's a board game on Steam. It's a board game video game. It's one of those things. They're coming out with a board game version of this actually on Kickstarter this year, I believe, or some. it's either going to be a Kickstarter or straight to refill, one of the two. 
But in Dwarf Romantic, it's a very simple town wilderness civilization building game where you have a bunch of hexagon tiles that you're placing together and trying to match sides by either having forests together, grass together, water together, or houses together based on how many sides how many sides you match to each of the different sides you're connecting your hexagon to, you're getting 10 points. And the whole goal is to try to get as many points as possible by the time your stack runs out. Um, doesn't sound very interesting on the top of it, but it is actually a very cool puzzle because as you are playing the game, the more points you score, the more tiles you're able to unlock. So as you reach certain point thresholds, you get, hey, this tile right here, which actually is easier to connect to all these spaces, that's going to give you more points if you do this this way. And if you get those pieces, it starts to connect and unlock more tiles, which makes your game go longer and longer. And soon you have this giant expanse of tiles that makes this really cool 3D animated civilization that's living in front of you. What I really like about, though, is that as you place tiles and create your own little world, you get to have these little missions pop up. And hmm. you click on those missions, it's like, hey, connect seven water tiles starting from this space right here. And so you have that mission to connect seven water tiles from there. And over on the other side of the board, there is, hey, you know, over here, there is, you know, to connect three forest tiles and all that stuff. So all these missions are popping up, giving you things to do the entire game. And good on the users. If a, a mission is no longer completable based on how you played your tiles, it just goes away and a new one pops up. So that's forgiving. It is very forgiving. It always feels like you're doing a good job in this game, but it you always leave feeling that you could have done better. And so okay. you want to go back again. This is a very <laughs> good game. I am slightly worried that the tabletop version they're creating is not going to amount to the excellence I find in the computer version, but we'll have to see. But that was a dwarf romantic. I, I always like those tile laying things. I think if when when you live on a boat, you're often playing with people who are not board gamers. Some of them English is not their first language, yep. and things like Carcassonne uh, or Land and Sea or these things where it's just here's a tile, make it line up with this tile is really an easy concept to explain. It's easy for kids to grasp. It's easy for non-gamers. I know your your parents really like uh, Carcassonne when we've played it. It just It's just such an easy thing to jump right into. You get it out of the box and you immediately want to start putting these little tiles together to, to make them match. I think that's such a cool sort of gateway style mechanic. Agreed. Well, my instruments are ready. Let's go ahead and dive down deep into Clark and Emily's story. Emily, the helm is now yours. You're probably more qualified to drive it than I am, so I'm excited to hear about this. Uh, well, this is really Clark's story. This is a pre-Emily story, but we'll yeah. just talk a little bit about dominoes, I guess. You know, like, as a kid, I had a set of dominoes, but, like, Andrew and I were talking earlier, you just kind of line them up and make them fall over, right? That's what dominoes are, but they got numbers on them, and there's games you can play, and they're actually a pretty big, huge thing culturally in the Caribbean and other places. Yep. Uh, I, I told the story at Gen Con. Andrew heard it and asked me if I'd come on the show to tell the story. So it's a little bit long story. Um, so I live this life. You know, I go off and go sailing and, uh, well, that's my life. Uh, sometimes we come back to the States, but for the most part, we live on a sailboat and hang around with other people who live on a sailboat. That's pivotal because they all have time. No one is going to the office. We have things yeah. to do, but we're free during the day. And we can really relish the time together. So it's nice to have games to play after you invite people over for dinner. Mm -hmm. I knew this 
Uh, I, I imagined the life at least. So before we took off, this was back in 2000, I uh, went to Wizards of the Coast in Seattle and uh, bought several things. Robo Rally was probably the best one that we bought there. But before we left, another thing about that is you're about to leave everybody you know, and they can come and visit you, but in every practical way, you're just stepping off the face of the earth as far as they're concerned. Yeah. So they'll all invite you to dinner. Um, this very good friend of mine, Bert Thompson, invited us over for dinner, and after dinner, he asked if we'd like to play dominoes. Well, I had never played an actual game with dominoes. As Emily said, you know, it's something that you would line up and knock over as a kid. But there's some really cool games. He uh, told us how to play a game called Mexican Train, and we played the game, and it was very nice. It was really great. After the game, I actually, you know, kind of said, yeah, this is really great. I got to get myself some dominoes. Uh, that'll work out in the boat real well. Well, his face lit up. Turns out my friend Bert is basically a pusher for the game Mexican Train. And he went over to a cupboard where he had a full case or the remnants of a full case of domino sets that he bought from Toys R Us and grabs a new one off the shelf and presents it to me. So it's still the one I have to this day. That's great. But then he tells me something. This is pivotal to the story. It turns out this game, Mexican Train, isn't one game. It's played all over the world. And it's played differently everywhere you go. Right. House rules. Yeah. Or boat rules, as we... <laughs> yeah. So he said, uh, the version of the rules that I've taught you, there'll always be an argument about the rules. So start the, the night out by describing your boat rules. And, uh, give, and these are rules that I've actually modified, he said, so that you could have dinner with a couple couples, play the game, and still go home at a reasonable hour. Okay. We're out there, and we invite people over, and we had learned really early that if you invite random people over for dinner and you bring out Robo Rally, they might be very disappointed because, quite honestly, they're not bright enough to play the game. Or they're not gamers. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you need like a test game just to gauge who's at the table or if they're, you know, there's a lot of people who want to just talk, you know, and if you start to play a game, yeah. you know, it'll be five minutes between someone's like, oh, wait, whose turn is it? What's, what's going on? So you need something fast. So yeah. uh, we found that if we put uh, a Mexican train out, anybody can play that. Uh, and then we can also judge them for deeper games later, maybe. So we'll play the game, and I would always start with, well, we play by temptress rules. Let me just go over those quickly and give the rules of the game. Well, a lot of people were just starting this life out. A lot of people never played a game in their life. They would come over, and they fell in love with this game. They thought it was really great. And a thing about sailing, especially when you sail from a northern climate, um, there's a certain time of year that you want to make this trip in. It's like birds migrating. Mm -hmm. And like a flock of birds that might be working their way down south, you kind of pick up other sailors along the way in your flock. So more and more people were getting invited over time, and this whole fleet, as it were, of sailboats were playing this game a lot. Everybody kind of had this idea, well, I'll get to Mexico, and I'll get like a hand-carved version of it there. It'll be so great. That's what I want to buy. Turns out you can't buy Domino's in Mexico, at least double twelves. Not good ones. So they all got imported, and, and the game really started flourishing down in Mexico. I'm going to jump ahead now. Now it's two and a half years later. I'm down in uh, uh, Panama, getting ready to go through the Panama Canal. So we're wandering around on land, and we see another couple, and we can kind of tell by how they're dressed and what they're carrying that they're boat people. So I just walked over and said, hi, hey, what boat you off of, and started conversation. 
Well, we got along famously. We had lunch together. Uh, we still got along, hung out for most of the day together. They invited us to their boat for dinner and a game. Yeah, common thing, so we came over. So that night we're on the boat after a very nice dinner. We sit down for a game and they bring out some dominoes. And they said, we'd like to play Mexican train. And, you know, when you're telling rules to somebody, especially when you know the rules might be different than what people are used to, you're a little nervous. And I'm trying to figure out a way to tell him that he didn't have to finish with the rules without interrupting him, because he starts his description is with, on this boat we play by temptress rules, and they are. The name of my boat is Temptress. It had come full circle. So I was being introduced to my own rule set. It was uh, pretty cool. <laughs> So wait, were the rules the same or had they, was it like telephone? Did no, they no, it was pretty much spot on. But I think if anybody deviated from the rules, it's like Monopoly. I understand that if you actually play by the rules, you can play it in a reasonable amount of time, but everybody modifies the rules and then it takes forever. If you change these rules, the game takes too long. It's 1130 at night, you're all tired and you say, oh yeah, that wasn't the rule and you go back. So I think it was telephone with self-correction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's just, I can't even imagine like, that must have been such a, like a surreal moment for you, Clark. Like just after two years of making this house rule comes in full circle to where they say they name your boat as a rules variance for a very, <laughs> very popular dominoes game. Yeah, we got all famous and everything. Yeah, <laughs> truly. It was Burt Thompson rules. Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. But uh, it would, that'd be harder to remember, maybe. It would be hard to remember because they don't know Burt Thompson. <laughs> yeah, the Burt Thompson variant doesn't sound nearly as appealing as the Tempest variant of Mexican yeah. Sadly. Uh, Burt has died, so he's left it to me. I'll take it as that. He's left uh, me that. He taught me a lot about machining, uh, running a lathe and stuff. And I have a gold map for Alaska from Burt Thompson. Oh. Sometime we have to get up there and uh, develop that claim. Okay. <laughs> So when it comes to like gaming, then with the boat community, is it pretty tight knit? What games you guys play? Because you know maybe it's not as you know there's not there's not too many people in the boating and gaming hobby that overlap. Is so what's that community like when it comes to like you know visiting and playing games with each other? Is there a lot of that kind of hey these couple made up this game and we're gonna play it and share? It? Like can you describe that a little bit? Because that's really fascinating. It's like most anywhere else. In reality, most people don't play games. We're more introducing tabletop games to people than otherwise. Yeah, I think like card, there's definitely like a poker culture. There's a lot of people who get together and play poker. Like you go into the harbor. Oh, that's those are the poker folks. You know, those are the musician folks who hang out with them. And there's sometimes there's a dominoes crowd and the drinking too folks. and the drinking folks. Yeah, you know, there's there's <laughs> little pods. But but uh, most people have a deck of cards aboard. Most people have a lot of people have a set of dominoes, so those are those are popular. And sometimes, um, uh, what's the one? Was it sequence? We've played sequence aboard a boat, like really old classic games. People have, mm -hmm. but every once in a while, you'll you'll find somebody who also is playing, uh, you know, serious games aboard their boat. I think the key for us, because you're working with a group of people that maybe they know card games, maybe they know a trick taking game. Um, but they aren't really into modern board games, is finding board games that you can play with, you know, it's often four people, because it's usually two couples or maybe five right. people. You've got to find games that are easily translate to something they already know. So if it's like a trick-taking game, most people have played, you know, a couple of traditional trick-taking games so they can pick up on that. And then the other thing is having something that's language-independent, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, like we have Catan aboard. Actually, we've played Catan. I played uh, Catan in French. Yeah, with a lot with the, Mouton, Mouton. <laughs> <laughs> but like things that they can point to. We love to play uh, Mysterium. With well, people. that was what I wanted to talk yeah. about. Very few people that we play games with have ever played a collaborative game before. And yeah. if you play a collaborative game like Mysterium, it's great because if you have people at different levels, they can be helped without it being a problem. Mm-hmm. You're not competing, so we're all winning together, so you can kibitz, and that's actually part of the game. Mm-hmm. And we've played with couples before where one of them speaks English, but the other one doesn't play speak English so well, and you can do a lot with pointing. You know, you're really just, it's just associating pictures and interpreting pictures, so it's an easy thing to do. And I think, so I'm always on the lookout for games that play well with two players and play with four players and are fairly relatively language independent and more of like a gateway style game. Things like those tile laying games, like the one that Josh uh, mentioned earlier, or like Carcassonne, things that instantly you can put things on the table and like mime the instructions and people get it. But there's still enough strategy there to be interesting. It really is incredible that gaming is a sort of universal, could be a sort of universal language people like one thing that has happened over generations is that we have you know taken aspects from different cultures and they're what they've done for play uh you know that you get that that you get into ludology when you get into that stuff like you all these different aspects of how people play how they what games they do what they do in their pastime have really come together in this melting pot where i think all of this history of you know language independence you know using pictures and playing games together has really kind of come to this moment and there's still more to get tapped into of this board game renaissance that people even who are not in the hobby are generally accepting that we're in now and i think it's because not only we're sharing board games of the world but board games and play is something that can really cross boundaries and really bring people together and i think your story is a great example of that thanks you know not to belabor the point too much but i feel like board games as a whole and tabletop games as a whole are kind of like an ocean right there's some people who are on the beach. There's some people who are afraid to go in too deep. And then there's others that go ahead and say, screw it. I'm jumping on a boat and I'm going as far in as I can go. And then there are others like us that dive as deep as we can possibly go into why those games exist. And people that don't even know an ocean exists. There you go. <laughs> those land lovers. Lakes. They got lakes. <laughs> so uh, generally speaking, this is just out of my own curiosity. You're talking about you know, language into independent games. And games that, you know, don't require lots of reading or things that can be just looked at. Uh, what do you think makes a great, you, you touched on some aspects of what makes a language independent game. But what aspects of those games makes a really good game and just an A-OK game, in your guys' opinion? I think having a game that's attractive is always great. When you pull something out of the box and someone says, oh, what's this? You know, these this isn't just a deck of cards. Uh, something that people can, you know, something that is pleasant to look at because sometimes when it's confusing to explain a game, you you want to get through it because oh, I just want to play with these components because they look so the great. The toy aspect. The toy aspect, right? I mean, board games in some ways, it's like permission for adults to play with something that's toy-like. And I think also games that are intuitive and like as in proofreading rule books and for other people or or play testing with other designers this is a big thing too like if there's an icon that you're using that's a circle and then you have circle tokens in the game automatically somebody is going to say i'm doing something with these tokens that relates to that circle icon and if they those aren't associated they shouldn't both be circles you know there should be some other if if there's something that's orange and then there's something else that's orange 
our mind is automatically going to associate those two orange things together. And finding games where that iconography is very clear, where the relationship between the pieces and the boards and the cards is very intuitive, those things are very important in a language-independent game to me. Because I think there's a lot of like prototypes and things I've seen that are language-independent, but just the iconography when there's 20 different symbols where they've literally just kind of done like a search and replace for the word water and they've put in a water drop. Like that's not language independent to me. It's a lot about the user experience of if can I take this out, not even read the instructions and kind of get an idea of what I'm going to be doing with these game pieces. Like we talked about Carcassonne and Landency, you immediately want to start rotating these tiles and oh, what's the biggest body of water I can make? Or what's the biggest city I can make out of these things? Um, I think that's really important, just making it visual. Long, uh, before I retired, uh, one of the things I did a lot of was uh, computer software development, uh, graphical user interface. And one of the things I would say is you don't need a manual. If you need a manual, I've done my job wrong and I have to fix it. That's a really that's one of the hardest things for me as you know an aspiring designer is iconography because I want people to be able to understand my game without having to read a bunch of rules. So under I really think that you bring up a fantastic point about it. Like sometimes an iconography is perfect, but sometimes I play games where it is so it, it's it's like own you know what's what's it called the things on the pyramids or you find Egypt yeah like, it's like hieroglyphics yeah exactly. yeah. Yeah, it's you like have to learn another language. <laughs> it's not language independence. It's like you have to learn the language of it. Exactly. Yeah, there's like this sweet spot between like, okay, it's language independent right here. You need rules, and there's like this weird spot. It's like where a jargony like, part. Yeah. yeah. Like, what's a D six? So I was. So this is a. It's a fun story. I was play testing this game that I created called the Mice of Marlow Manor, which is a one versus many hidden movement game where these there's these mice who are trying to survive in this mansion, and there's this evil guy who wants to rid the house of all the mice, the cute Love little it. mice, right? Love it already. And uh, I was I was cold play testing it um, with some friends who came over for dinner, and so part of that is I just printed the rules, gave them the rules. And just wanted to observe them like i was like i'm not going to correct them if they get a rule wrong that's what's in the book so i'm going to see what happens and in the first um few minutes they were just reading the components and one of the components was a meeple and uh <laughs> no no not a meeple a squeeple a squeeple where the world is squeeple through the mice but the but the, but the meeple and um the person who read the game aloud was saying meeple and somehow one of the players associated <laughs> with it, he thought that the name of the character was Mr. Meatball. <laughs> so the whole game, they were saying, oh, Mr. Meatball, let's move him over there. And I just could, I had to just leave the room at one point because I could not stop laughing, but I was like, don't correct it. That's what he, they called it. It's Mr. Meatball from now on. <laughs> but sometimes you let go. But that, that made me realize like, oh, most people don't know what a meeple is, and the closest thing they hear is meatball. So it's like, okay, that's now a pawn in the game, <laughs> you know? Or, or having a picture, but like, this is a meeple. Um, yeah. That, or a D6. Or, or a D6, yeah, like D6. People are like, what's D6 mean? Um, you'd have to kind of step out and really have empathy for that non-gamer and figure out what is going to make sense to them. While also not dumbing it down too much, you know, and kind of bringing them up as well. Again, find that fine balance between introducing people who don't play games to your game, but also not insulting the intelligence of other gamers who play a lot of games. 
right, I, right. Uh, Mr. Meatball, that makes me laugh so hard because I take Meeple for granted so often. <laughs> Just Mr. Meatball. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> well, we are very much deep down into the board game ocean right now. Let's go ahead and turn on my instruments and see what's on our radar. Shouldn't it be sonar? <laughs> sonar ra- is it's probably sonar. Okay, so let's see what we're looking forward to playing in our future. So, Andrew, what are you looking forward to playing? Uh, I'm looking forward to finally trying Cartographers. This is the game that everybody in the Roll and Write community seems to think is the premier right now. It's either that one or Fleet the Dice Game or Three Sisters or whoever one. But, I mean, those are the three that almost everybody can... Oh, I guess Hadrian's Wall is on there, too. Those are probably the top four, and I have not tried cartographers so i'm looking forward to trying that one do you guys do a lot of rolling rights on boats like like maybe like because rolling rights tend to be smaller games yeah you know I, until very recently i i did not see the appeal of a rolling right to me rolling right is like yachty that's the only thing i've really played that was technically a rolling right game uh and to me it was always like I don't want to feel like I'm doing homework. I guess I had this assignment in, in middle school where we had to draft like the path of a river going down a mountain and we had to roll these dice and randomly determine the path of it. And we did this for like a week and I hated <laughs> this activity so much. So maybe I'm, I'm traumatized by this activity. But whenever I was like pencil and paper, like that doesn't feel like a game to me. But we recently picked up a copy of Welcome To mm-hmm. and played that, which I guess is technically a flip and write game but i i kind of like that one yeah. i must say uh yeah so i'm I'm interested to try maybe some more roll and write or flip and write or writing uh heavy games might be interesting fleet's about boats so maybe you can start a little, little crunchier but if i like i like fleet i haven't played cartographers yet but i, I hear the same thing as andrew it's kind of one of the you know premier put on a pedestal for the roll and write community Clark, Emily, what are you guys looking forward to playing in the future? Well, I think the one in our collect, we don't have a big shelf of shame. Like if we bought something, we usually play it right away. And then we either, you know, we play it two or three times. If we like it, we keep it. If we don't, we give it away or trade it Mm -hmm. uh, just because we don't have room. And the one thing we've bought recently that we have not played yet is uh, an oldie, uh, Seven Wonders Duel, which whenever I ask people for recommendations on a like strategic two-player game, uh, that doesn't take up a lot of space. Almost all the time, somebody says, oh, Seven Wonders Duel, but you already know that one. I was like, actually, we haven't played that one. So we've picked it up, and we're excited to dive in uh, to that one, I think, and try it out and see if it's if the hype is all worth it. Recently played this one. It is fantastic. It is a very good game. As someone who loves and plays a lot of two-player games, probably like yourself, it's, it's superb. Lots of stuff to dig into, and it is for your point too, it's pretty language independent as well. Like the iconography isn't terribly complicated, so it is fantastic. What about you, Josh? What are you playing on my horizons? In my horizons, I am looking forward to actually starting a small campaign of Masks, the RPG. I am a huge RPG guy. I love role playing games. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is the most famous one. I don't play that too much as often anymore because I find there's more interesting design space in other RPGs. But Mask is one of my favorites, probably easily. Sorry, like RuneQuest. Nobody plays it anymore, but it's the best Rune, RPG I've been going to dive into RuneQuest because I really liked Call of Cthulhu and what Chaosm did. And I heard RuneQuest is just as good. And I've been looking for another fantasy RPG. I've been actually looking into that one. I just don't have a book for it yet. It's in college, uh, and it's back alive now. I saw it at Gen Con. 
But uh, it is wonderful. And I got the chance when I lived and did some projects with IBM in Texas to play with the guy that used to play with the designers, wow. you know, the developers. And we would we would get together as one does from an RPG at like, you know, noon and then play the whatever night, you know, dark in the morning. And we would never have a battle. It was just all about the sociopolitical stuff. The backstories, the religions are just amazing. And, and we could just play it that way. And that's a D100. You're rolling D100s or percentile dice for that one, right? Yeah, it's the only RPG I've ever played where it actually makes sense. I mean, this is the joke, of course, that RuneQuest people used to say. If you had two brothers, identical twins, one went off to battle and the other guy worked on the farm and then you drop them both off a cliff. One just brushes it off, the other guy dies. RuneQuest isn't like that. A human's a human's yeah. a human. You don't keep up, upping the hit points to, to infinity. And uh, everything is just percentile. So someone that's never played can actually play their character with the right strategies without having to know all the intricacies and how the tables work. Oh, yeah. They, they did the same thing with Call of Cthulhu, which is another percentile game. Mm -hmm. And that's why, and I love call cthulhu system i really do and that's why i've been thinking about trying to get into rune quest so i'm glad to hear a glowing review from you from it but that's what i'm not what i'm talking about today i'm actually talking about like i said mask the rpg which is a game about it's young young justice teen titans-esque it's about young superheroes in their teenage years and their mm -hmm. coming of age story basically to try and figure out what kind of hero are they what kind of person are they and where do they fit in this superhero pump full of villains universe it is absolutely fantastic what i reason i like it i played it before for a couple sessions but i'm jumping into it again after probably a couple years of not playing it i'm really excited because what makes this game so good is that the character stats change based on the way that the world interacts with them because these are young impressionable teenagers an adult could come hmm. and say hey you're not that good at this and that bring down their brings down their confidence and that affects how they do well in the future it is just such a good system. It's powered by the apocalypse, which is two six-sided dice you roll for the entire game. And it is just riddled with rich story and decisions that every time I played it, I've just walked away just feeling like, you know, this is just one of the best systems I've ever played. Someone plays a lot of RPGs. But I'm excited to run that for my store. I'm doing a four-week campaign. I have it all, you know, mapped out what's going to happen. And then the player's going to jump into this world and we'll see how they react to it. But that's a mask, the RPG. Let's get this up to the surface because we've kept these guys down here for far too long. Let's shoot up straight away, forgetting all oxygen rules, and we'll let you guys go. Emily Clark, it has been fantastic having you guys on. I loved hearing about all the stories on your boats, the stories about dominoes. You guys are just great great things you're doing in the board game community. If people want more of Emily and Clark in their life or some more small furry games, whatever it may be, where can they go? Well, you can go to Emily and Clark's Adventure on YouTube. I think we're even famous enough. If you just Google Emily and Clark, we might show up. On yeah, that. yeah. But, but test us on that. And officially See, it's at sign Emily and oh, Clark. Oh, at sign word, Emily and Clark. But I've done it. Media. We show up. Yeah, and then uh, Small Furry Games is small furry, not fury, not angry. Furry, like uh, <laughs> full of fur. Uh, small furry games. Dot com. Yeah. Smallfurrygames.com and small furry games on social media. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for your story. It was fantastic. I wish you safe travels all over. Hope to see you guys at a con one day. We'll see what happens. I don't get to many of those big cons as I would like to. 
Well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Tabletop Submarine Podcast. Andrew, do you have any final words for our guest and our listeners? Stay afloat. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, as always, I'm Josh. And I'm Andrew. And this has been the Tabletop Submarine.